welcome to the Dad Strength Podcast, helping you take care of yourself so that you can be present for your people. The Dad Strength Podcast is an Unlearning Network production. My name is Jeff Gervitz. I am your host. I am your lifting partner and chief resilience officer. I say the word resilience a lot, probably about as much as anyone. That's an important one. I have come to think of it in two ways. You can change your environment or you can change yourself. Like if you're sitting in a room and feeling cold, you can turn up the thermostat or you can put on a sweater, that's environmental stuff, or you can level up your ability to deal with that cold. Uh, Last winter in Toronto, when it got pretty chilly, uh, when I noticed myself feeling cold walking around outside, I would think, you know, people pay good money for this. Uh, People go to seek out cold exposure, ice plunges and all that. I talked about that a few episodes ago with Robbie Bent. It's very popular, it's valuable, and I just started shifting my thinking and going, hey, I'm getting it for free. I should point out, you know, we shouldn't be fooled into thinking that we have to choose one or the other. That's often the messaging. You can have both, and you should use both. So don't believe in the hype of the lone wolf doing it all himself. If you think about just about every sort of well-known, I'm going to say self-appointed alpha male out there, and I know you can think of at least one or two in popular media, These guys have a whole team behind them. People are making their food and booking their flights and massaging their backs. And there's nothing wrong with this, I think, other than pretending otherwise. Doing this stuff takes a team effort, truly. My guest today has found a way to take both personal challenge and team effort to incredibly high levels. Chris Duffin is so accomplished. I'm not even sure where to start with this guy. He has a master's in engineering and an MBA, multiple businesses. He has set a world record in the deadlift. He has squatted a thousand pounds for reps. He's done charity work. He's written a book. And he's come from a childhood that would have crushed most people, I think. He is so accomplished and driven. It's truly a wild ride. So in this episode, We're going to talk about growing up in the wild. We're going to talk about fatherhood. And yeah, we're going to talk about resilience. Before we get into it, I'm going to tell you about my upcoming workshop for high-performing dads with ADHD. Dates are yet to be confirmed, but it's going to be this autumn in Toronto. You don't need to commit. I just want to get the ball rolling and have some great conversations as I continue to organize this thing. To learn more, you can visit dadstrength.com slash ADHD, fill out the form, and you and I will have a chat. Now for my interview with Chris Duffin. Let's get into it. How do you describe yourself to strangers, people outside of the world of fitness? Uh, that's one I struggle with. You know, people ask, you know, what do you, what do, you do for, uh, you know, a living, that sort of stuff. And uh, my best explanation, which doesn't make a lot of sense, is my job is to be myself. It's literally to do the things that I want to do in the world and bring about that change. And uh, so that uh, that's hard for many people to, to grasp. Um, most people think I, uh, I'm a trainer, uh, which is that's a good profession. Nothing wrong with that. What am I? I'm uh, I'm I'm an author. Uh, I'm an inventor. Uh, I'm authority on um uh, biomechanics and uh, human movement and loading. Uh, I'm an engineer. I'm a business owner. I'm an entrepreneur. Um, 
yeah, so uh, uh, those are those are some of the buckets, and uh, yeah, I'm a, I'm a fam a father and a family man. It's kind of a unique challenge to try to hone it down and take away everything that is not you, all that is not David, or I guess I should say all that is not Chris Duffin, right? Yeah, I'm a I am a person trying to teach people uh, both. Uh, with the tools that I create, the methodologies, and 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 then the walk that I walk uh, is how to become more resilient, um, how to chase resilience of body, mind, and soul, and how is that going to prepare you uh, for you know the events of the future that you don't know, um, and be more resilient to to withstand uh, and adapt to the changes that are going to come to you to live a better quality of life. Uh, through being stronger. And so, you know, my, my email signature, we've discussed, uh, you know, stuff back and forth via email. It's just simple. This is live better through strength. And that ended up becoming the, you know, kind of the tagline for Kabuki strength as well. Um, but, you know, a lot of people will think that is the the gym mentality of just like, yeah, that means uh, go get strong and, and uh, buff and be a meathead when it, that is just such a small subset uh, within that and not even an accurate description of that as a whole because it uh, it is it is just that. I want people to live a better quality of life. And that's very specifically why I use the word re resilience instead of strength um, because they are, you know, one in the same, uh, but it's it's understanding the concept behind it, which is being stronger. So a lot of people may not understand that is actually going to reduce your chance for like in a physical realm, physical injury, right? If you're stronger, there's a less chance you're going to blow out a knee or a back or any number of things if, you know, things happen to you in life. But the same thing happens if we build strength, you know, within those other realms, body, mind, and soul, right? All of these areas. And and that's why I wrote my book, uh, the, the Eagle and the Dragon, was really to express those things on more of the mental and emotional uh, or, you know, <laughs> mental and spiritual, I guess, sides of, of the, that equation. Uh, because there is so it's, it's the same thing. If you are not prepared, you can end up in a situation of, of having life overcome you and run over you, being overwhelmed. Uh, having something move, you know, you into a, experiencing something as a traumatic event or any number of things that are going to have a negative impact. And if we, if we layer and continue to build our level of being able to have a higher level of capacity for those types of events, that's strength, that's resilience. And that is just like, if I can only walk in the gym and I, you know, I can't bit, I can't squat down, you know, to the, to the ground properly to tie my shoes. You're way more likely to have an injury than somebody that can squat 400 pounds or 300 pounds. Um, they're going, you know, it's this, the, the same concept, you know, if somebody runs into them, they fall down. Um, let's just take a, a mountain biker, you know, if they don't do any, you know, training of their upper body and they crash and go flying off in the ground and hit their shoulder, that may be a career ending incident, 
because they completely destroy that complex because they have no strength in that area where um, having some level. And so we're not talking about being a giant jack dude like myself. Like that's the piece like people get confused looking at me when I say these words about what I'm really speaking to because they want to they, they perceive that as the, the expectation. And that's I've taken it to another level because that's what I enjoy. That's part of my hobby. And that's part of me kind of pushing the limits so that I can be in this process of discovering the there's so much more when you're you, when you're playing on the the extremes of things of how things are employed and how you know it, and so just like the the stresses in in training or in life on the physical nature there's stuff that you can't adapt to if you get joints in bad positions and bad loading you're going to put stress on the body that you can't adapt to, that falls outside of the specific adaptation to impose demand that anybody in the training world knows. And so everything that I do is about how do we limit those? How do we cover from those? And so how that we can have just the stresses that we can adapt to, to that are going to provide that stimulus, right? And the same thing can happen on the mental, you know, emotional side of things, right? So there's things like to grow you know, to grow in those areas, to build resilience, you don't have to have traumatic events and probably shouldn't because those can lead to a lot of baggage and things that you may not uh, be able to, to adapt to. That is about as good a segue as I could possibly ask for, for your childhood. <laughs> could you tell me a little bit about how you grew up and how life was different for you? Well, you can barely uh, see it up there on the, in the corner. Uh, but that's the uh, cover of my book, The Eagle and the Dragon. And that's uh, that's a picture from the Eastern Oregon de Desert, which has some relevance. That's one of the areas that I lived growing up. And by I mean desert, I mean out there, removed, the wilderness, away from society. Now, many of the younger years were in the Northern California uh, area. So it started kind of north of the Bay Area, some communal hippie type living, and then moved further uh, away from society into some more remote areas as my parents tried to, to make a living away from society as a whole and forge their own path and figure out a way to do that. And that's something that's been a lifelong goal of, of my mother. But that involved being in the drug trade for a living. And so uh, essentially, by the time I graduated high school, half my life, I had been homeless. And we're talking about a poverty most people wouldn't understand. So we're talking a family of six, uh, sorry, seven, including my, my, my brother, uh, living on $5,000 a year. We're talking, the opening of my book is me at six years old the family living in tree forts. So when I say, you know, we're out camping, it's not the campgrounds that people go to uh, for their glamping or whatever people call it uh, these days, but, you know, out in the woods and there's rattlesnake dens all over the place. So at six years old, I'm being taught how to capture and handle live rattlesnakes. So the story opens with me, you know, holding one in my hand and the feelings that I'm experiencing uh, as, you know, it wraps its, 
its body around my arm and it's, you know, you're holding it beside the jaws because you know just how to hold it so that it, it, it can't, uh, it can't do anything. It can't strike you. And you're looking into those eyes and like the, the, the feelings that you're experiencing of learning how to control your fear, learning that if I'm overcome with fear, I'm going to die if I can't control that. But at the same time, it's not disrespecting it, not disregarding, not living this. Don't be afraid of anything because if you don't respect it, you're going to die. Right. And so I learned a lot of interesting lessons at a, at a very young age. And we had our, uh, our beds up in the uh, trees. So we had beams lashed up there and I had a younger brother and we'd run around run around the mountains shoeless. And that's why I was being taught how to, to deal with rattlesnakes because they were there. And I had uh, one younger sister with another one on the way. And it's a, I don't know, it's a funny story. Uh, but my mom, she was pregnant with my second sister at the time. And so she had to hike out to the, to the main road when she went into labor, which by main road, I mean the gravel dirt track in the mountain and uh, wait for a vehicle to come by, which the, the only vehicle that came by was a dump truck. And I'm not sure why they didn't let her in the cab. There was two of them, I guess it was full. So they, she climbed into the bed of a dump truck and was driven into town. Dump truck rolls up to the hospital emergency room and she climbs out the back and delivers my sister. So, <laughs> so my life is filled with a lot of like stories like these that most people are like, what, 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 what? <laughs> and then there's the serial killer. There's the human trafficking, the murderers, you know, obviously the drug running, drug abuse, um, all sorts of honestly, just fucked up shit. <laughs> yeah, that's that, a fair descriptor, I think. <laughs> that was the course of my, my early life. Yeah. So, um, so I, I know a little bit about, you know, struggle and strife and hardship and watching people die around you and seeing the impact of that life can have on you, that your environment and your circumstances uh, can impact people. And uh, that's, uh, yeah, that's what I had to use as a framework kind of for early in my life. Now, I was, I was in a an interesting role. I was the oldest of the, the children. And while my parents were out either tending crops or in later years after, you know, we got taken by the state for a little while, which dives into the whole serial killer human trafficking story. We don't need to dive in. It's in the book and it's hard to talk about sometimes. Yeah, I get that. Yeah. And um, uh, so after that, it was started as logging and then got into prospecting and mining and I would be the one taking care of my sisters uh, during the course of a lot of that. So, you know, I, I think there was a lot of survivor mentality with me, like just being present, having to be the one that was in control, taking care of things, the not really having a childhood and a lot of responsibility early on. And, and it, it's so much so that like when I left home, things got like really bad at the house when I when I went off to school. So I was really good. You could never really sleep on anything, could you, in your childhood? Like I remember in your book, you described 
how you love to pick a type of mushroom. And if you cut it, it bled. It looked like human blood. And that was the good kind because if you got it wrong and it had sort of an orangey color, it would just kill you dead. My remembering this right a yellow there was one yeah it would be a, a yellowish color and another one was a red color now the one that was red was amazing it was literally like eating venison which was our most common food because we were poaching deer uh you know that's that's what you do when you don't have any money right <laughs> you know if you say talk about oh living you know living in the envi- environment must have been amazing like you know when i talk about like the you know all we you know like hunting and foraging and not having tech and just being one with the world. And like we read all the time, like candlelight and flashlight, like, you know, every evening. Uh, and so a lot of people, oh, man, that must have been like the, the Captain Fantastic movie. And I'm like, ah, oh, a lot of that was like that. And you can romanticize it, except uh, there are a lot of other people that live in that type of environment that you bounce against aren't there necessarily for the same altruistic reasons, right? So, like, understand the context. Now, the other side is like, oh, my God, your parents must have been so so horrible. It must have been so traumatizing and not having – and I'm like, well, we were together all the time. Like, we – we were a unit. It was, you know, us against the world. And I got to spend so much time with them and talking about, they were really, by the way, hyper intelligent people. Sometimes those people really struggle with living in the world. Right. And that's, that's the type, like, you know, my father was a member of Mensa. My mom was, you know, she had a, she had scholarship to go to school to become a chemical engineer. And she was top of her class, like 1500 person college down in the the Bay Area for academics and athletics. And they just, you know, can't function in, in the normal world. And, uh, but we would sit there and have conversations about politics and philosophy and, 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 and there was like, you know, enjoying the, you know, it's a kid running around the wilderness doing my thing. And yeah. Occasionally you run into some bears or a bear like tears your tent apart while you're gone and, uh, eat your favorite flashlight, you know? Um, <laughs> so, so yeah, there was, I mean, it was, I was physically connected with the world in a way that a lot of people weren't from an early mm-hmm. age. And I was physically connected to my life, my living, like being able to, properly set up a tent or string a tarp or collect water or, Hey, I got to take a bath. So we're filling jugs in the stream and setting them out in the sun so we can wash. And like, you know what, there's, there's a lot of peace and tranquility with that type of environment too. So, so understand like the horrific or the bad things, you know, those are certain instances and there's years of like freaking challenging shit in there too. So it's a mix. It's a mixed bag. Yeah, it sounds like you had a lot of intellectual freedom. You could be free in books and ideas and conversations. And, you know, and that that is a completely different type of freedom, right? Yeah. And so it wasn't it wasn't in society. You know, you go to the store and you're you look like crap and people are watching you and comments are being made and you go to school and nobody talks to you. Kids make fun of you. You're treated dif- different by the teachers. You're changing schools constantly. Um, that was not an enjoyable space. That was something that was really challenging for me. Yeah, coming back into that 
it's tough to be in two worlds, I would imagine. Yeah. So I know that by the time you were in high school, you were a standout athlete, an academic. So where did you, I mean... So yeah, I academically, I really started to excel at some point in time. Um, I was out in the Eastern Oregon desert and, uh, it was like a couple hours to like the main, uh, school, but there was this small one room school. I had the biggest, uh, class there. There's three of us and the teacher had cancer. And so he just, but he's the only person. So he'd just sit behind a desk and he had all the books on the wall. And, uh, you know, so you, there's a little schedule written on the board, you know, study English at this time. There's the books for your grade. It's completely self-directed, right? I actually function really well in that. So in sixth grade, I finished high school. Uh, <laughs> and so then school after that was pretty freaking boring because I did everything. I did every exercise and all this. And then later in school, as I'm going through high school, I found out you're, they'd pick out like little pieces, bits and pieces. And I'm like, I did everything. <laughs> <laughs> And, uh, so, uh, yeah, school was pretty easily. So, uh, it, by high school, you know, I excelled academically and in there I was like, I had this physical connection. I was a very physical person as well. And I decided to, to get involved with sports and luckily the sports programs fund people with no money. So I didn't have to, uh, you know, the hundred dollars to participate was something we didn't have, but it was taken care of. And I started lifting lifting weights too, just because I was like, I need to balance this. And my stepfather was always preaching this, you know, strong back, strong mind, um, you know, component. He was, uh, uh, interesting philosophical character and, uh, and a genius, but yeah, that was something. And so that just was like always imbued in who I was. And so by the time I, you know, as a senior in high school, yeah, I was a, you know, I was a star athlete. I was valedictorian, like all the stuff. It was a small school, you know, um, and uh, ended up getting a full ride academic scholarship to go to school. I was also supposed to go wrestle at the, the big college in the state as well, but I had better funding to, to go to the other one. Um, there was an article that was written on me at the time, which helped kind of that. So it was a front page of of uh, the local newspaper in Central Oregon, which then got picked up by the wire service and went all over the Northwest. And so people donated some money uh, for me to get a computer and some of the things that I needed to go to school. So that was that was pretty nice. Um, and then, yeah, I went to school and didn't talk to my parents for a while because, you know, I try to call home and they'd borrow money. <laughs> and because uh, that's well, that's that, that was the process that went all through high school. You know, I was working, I was going to school, I was doing sports. And, you know, I'd wake up from my evening shift or my weekend shifts and uh, my mom would be digging through my pants to pull out all the tip money or whatever I had so that they could go get beer. And, you know, but that sounds terrible, but, you know, that means there'd be less of, you know, money going to that from the other funds that they'd have. So there's more food on the table and and so on. So it was just the nature of things. And in college, I just was like, I'm going to take a step away. I don't got time to support this. And so about a year and a half, I didn't spend much time connected with home. And that's when things got really bad. So my mom had a mental breakdown, ended up out in Montana. And my, my stepfather, my father, was <clears throat> on a travel into in, insanity. You know, people of geniuses and they, whatever, they, that, that shit happens. And, uh, you know, the alcohol and drugs certainly weren't, weren't helping. 
and my sisters were in bad, bad, bad way. So I, they were on the streets, uh, and yeah, yeah. Is this funny story? I don't know. I could tell bad stories. I don't really tell all the horrific stuff in my book just to tell horrific stories. So there's a, uh, there's a lot of stuff and I just, it's just not worth, it doesn't, doesn't tell the story other than if I want to tell a sob story, but, uh, like my, one of my sisters, she was 13 years old. I think I have this one in the book and she is, uh, it's 13 years old. This is central Oregon. There's a foot of snow on the ground. Cause it, you know, it snows between a foot to four feet there every, every winter. And he can't find his favorite cereal bowl. So he kicks her out at 13 years old with nothing but the clothes on her back in a foot of snow permanently find your own living because he thinks she stole his favorite cereal bowl. Turned out it was sitting on top of the fridge, but, um, Anyway, I ended up starting to take custody of my sisters. So I was 21 years old when I did this. And I could tell a story like I was some overachiever and like super like on top of shit. You know, it sounds like I was. I was a senior in college. I'd finished all my schooling except for my senior project. I was working full time as a uh, in the industry as a manager of a window and door manufacturer. I owned my own home. <laughs> I was president of the engineering society at the school, you know, lots of stuff. I had a side business. I sat, I had a side business. I was running on the weekend. Uh, I had a paintball rental business and, and, uh, but I was a, I, I was a fucking mess. Anyway, I was drinking too much. Uh, like every day I had all sorts of, yeah, I, figuring out myself in life. And, but I started taking custody of my sisters. So I took from 21 till about 30, I was raising uh, my three sisters from 14 through there, like 14 through 18 uh, or 19 ish uh, period of uh, years. So uh, yeah, I did that uh, while I was finished my engineering degrees, getting my MBA, chasing my career and figuring out who the fuck I was in this world. I hope swearing on this podcast is okay because well, we're pretty deep um, in it now. Yeah, yeah. No, we're good. We're good. <laughs> so let me ask you this. Yeah. It sounds like you really just made it all happen. You made it work. You got through all of this stuff in spite of tremendous adversity. You took care of your sisters. Uh, you took care of your family. You did what you needed to do. At what point in your life did you say to yourself, you know, I can choose. I can decide how I want to be in this world and then start taking steps in that direction. When I was 35, <laughs> actively. Now, it's interesting when I, I, I you, you read my book and you tell the stories, every chapter is layered with the levels of introspection that I had during my life that was a continual process. And that's what I lead people on. My book isn't a uh, uh, a woe is me story or I'm great story or any of this, you've read it. It's written for the reader in lessons. And I use my story to articulate this, that because uh, the viewpoint I had in my life is people have had it worse. People have done better, like all that, but very few people have seen the scope that I have in, in the course of my life. And, and uh, so there was a lot of 
there was a lot of introspection. I just didn't really realize maybe what I was doing at the time uh, in that uh, in that process. And so, but the reviewing like my life in a historical perspective, you know, when I was sitting there with kids, my own kids, and they were hitting five, six years old, and I looked at them one day and I'm sitting there in the hot tub at the back of my house with a white picket fence as I'm running an aerospace company, talking with the execs of Boeing and and uh, uh, and the bank and working on a turnaround and uh, you know auction off of the company and I own my gym and I'm number one athlete in the world. I'm like, I'm fucking, life's pretty damn good. And I'm sitting there in the hot tub with my two children and I look at them and I think, all of a sudden it hits me like where I was when I was their age. And I look at them and I've always said, I, I regret nothing in my life. I would not change it for the world. But I looked at them and I thought about them being in that experience. And it just brought a depth of sadness to me that was, it was eye-opening. It was an awakening kind of moment that, holy shit. Okay. There's some things there that I need to process that I've been fine with and I was okay with and didn't fully understand because I was I was in the survivor mentality this whole time. I put in my life people at all phases that I couldn't fail because I had to be there for them. And I'd always done this my whole life so that there was no no reason that I could fail, that I could not be present, that I could not let my own demons take over me. And I never really fucking dealt with this. And that was, that was the moment. And that's when I realized that I was going to write my book. I realized, you know, wow. Okay. So the stuff that I did learn was really valuable. It did help me in that process. And you don't have to have that life um, to, you know, accomplish amazing things. But I'm like, there's things there that people can use. And then I'm like, wow, I've been using them all this time to be an amazing leader to this is how I inspire people. This is how I and nobody knew my story at this time, by the way, but it was my approach uh, that I used being authentic, being real, challenging people like putting them out there where they're afraid of like whatever I'm putting in front of them, but I'm telling them, I believe in you and, and pushing them and then watching as they, they overcome, you know, overcome that. And all of a sudden, you know, how that engages them in their job, their life. And then you're doing this one-on-one -on -one and it's changing companies. And then that's bringing like all this stuff that was bring me prosperity in life by being sought after to do the things that I do. I'm like, yeah, I would, you know, I had some expertise and, you know, certain ways of business processes and all that. But like, that's not what it was. It was changing people. You change people, you change culture, you change companies. And, and uh, <clears throat> anyway, I'm, I just kind of went off on a tangent here, but uh, that is parenting too, right? Uh, <laughs> or what should be parenting this day and age, it's a little different. Sometimes leads some different results, but, um, yeah. Uh, so, uh, I don't know that I answered your question directly. I kind of forgot what it was, honestly. No, but, we got um, into it. We got into it. You know, uh, it's amazing. You had pretty much a PhD in resilience by the time you got out of elementary school. And so I ask people sometimes, 
I'm talking about like first generation wealth where people came up the hard way and, and benefited from it. But now they've got kids and they've got to think about, well, how do I make sure they learn what they need to do and aren't too soft or complacent? But at the same time, you know, I imagine that for you as a dad, safety and security are absolutely top of mind with the experience that you want your kids to have. So how do you juggle all of that? Like when you create opportunities for resilience, for struggle with your kids, it's not a default setting anymore. It's by choice. So how do you orchestrate this? Think about it in the manner of what you would think about developmental kinesiology, right? Uh, Well, okay, that doesn't make sense yet. We'll get back there if we can, yeah. You may have heard this story, but this analogy that I used before, but so when your kid gets to nine month old, there's a set of patterns. It's all ingrained in our neurology that we, that we learn. And by that time you're moving from the squatting to standing and walking phase. And this is where the parent wants to buy the walker or hold their hands and get them walking. Like my, my kid was walking at eight and a half months. They're faster and better than everybody else. And you're, you're helpful. You try to help them. And, uh, what you should do is stick your leg out and swipe their, their leg from out from under them and knock them over. And man, that, that sounds, sounds like I'm a dick. (laughs) Sweep Uh, the leg, Johnny. But the more opportunity that you have to practice those patterns and ingrain those patterns over and over again, the more strength that you get in building that, the better you're going to be. That's what happens. Like you're okay to fall down and get back up. That is part of the process. Failure leads to this empowerment of knowing I don't have to have my parents hold me to be successful. It teaches the body. So again, if dive just a hint into developmental kinesiology, if your hands are overhead and your base of support is overhead, it causes a lift and raise of the, uh, of the rib cage, which then creates a default pattern in how the diaphragm relates to the pelvis. Why am I telling this? It teaches you to find stability in the wrong areas and then ingrains that within the body and the neurology. If I believe I have to be able to, you know, uh, you know, I, I need my parents to support me to walk. They're not around. Am I safe? Uh, it's the so mentally the same thing could be going on, and so so we need to think about this in all aspects of life, right? Because this is physiology. This is this the said principle, but it goes beyond like training here, and so um, in life as a whole, a lot of times you want to you know create safety and security but they need to fail. They need to fail and they need to learn and overcome that themselves because that is how you gain the confidence that you can figure out a solution. You can come back and try harder. You can learn more. You can all these sorts of things. So if I cover all the bases to like get my kid into school, Right. And I 
I grease the wheels and I talk to so-and-so and I feed the whatever. And it's like this person goes through life like it's always going to happen. Mama and daddy are going to take care of this. And this happens like as an employer, there's 20 year old plus kids, kids that will have their parent call in sick for them or schedule an interview for them. That is wild, right? And so that's, that is the, this. Now at the same time, safety and security, like I'm not gonna, you know, I'm not gonna swipe the, the feet out from under my kids when, you know, there's something dangerous sitting on the floor or, uh, you know, there's, there, there, there's, there's, some, there's some understanding of the concepts here. I'm not gonna let them fail in a manner that's going to cause some level of trauma or strife and I'm going to help them with a number of things, but I'm also going to challenge them and I'm going to let them fail on their own. And I'm not just going to hand that. So it's a balance back and forth. But understanding those concepts can help you. I can't spell out every decision or like give you a perfect example of what that looks like through a, through, a, through a child's life. But the reason that I did what I did is growing up, I said I was a very physical person. I was connected like... I had to set up my tents and run the right troughs so water could roll and string the tarps and kill a rabbit and catch catch some grasshoppers so I could put them on a hook so I could do some fishing so I could get some brook trout so that when my parents got home, we could have dinner tonight. We could like, and guess what? And all that, I failed all the time, all the time, but I was so connected. You try again and you try a different way. And it created in me, by the time I was in high school, this kid with a huge level of like lack of confidence in, in social environments and self-doubt and all this stuff. At the same time, somebody who had such a level of confidence in himself and his ability to accomplish things that I could, I, I believe that I could do anything. And that's if I just put my mind to it. If I... If I decided any avenue, if I went down that path, I could do it. High school, I was, uh, my first year wrestling, I lost 25 matches in a row. End of the season, I, I won two. My senior year, was bested three times during the course of uh, the year. Three of those people I was facing at districts. Two weeks before districts, my wrestling coach, He's one of our salespeople, by the way, now. Uh, 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 we lived on another area of the state than where we are right now. But uh, anyway, um, he asked me, he's like, how do you think districts is going to go? And I said, well, I'm going to win. He's like, oh, okay. Then, then what's going to happen? He's like, well, I'm going to go to state and I'm going to go to the finals. And anybody, the outside perspective doesn't know me or even him, like, where is this coming? Like, and, uh, this was a very considered response, but he believed me. It wasn't like a cocky statement. It was just like, this is what's going to happen. Cause I knew I could do it. I believed it. I'd wrestled them. I knew what they did. I knew how they reacted. I knew how to change my game plan to beat three people that I didn't, that it, that had beat me during the year. And I went to districts and I didn't have a single offensive point scored against me through the entire tournament. 
only time a point was scored when I let somebody go. Uh, I chose you go so I could take you down again. <laughs> and then I went to state. And I did the same thing every single match all the way to the final match where I was facing the three-time state champion. Then I let my head get the best of me. I got, I, yeah, we can tell that story if it makes sense, doesn't. But the, the point of, uh, of that is that level of confidence came from the fact that I had failed so much, but I had, I knew that that meant nothing. That was the first step of the process. And it wasn't even going to be the last failure that I had. It's going to be another one and another one before I get to be successful. But I, I could do it if I chose to. And you want to build that into your children, right? Yeah. It sounds like you never internalized the failure itself. You internalized the process. You, you saw this as uh, learning opportunity. You know, we talk a lot about growth mindset, but this is an example of growth mindset where you're like, oh, this will help shape me. This will help me get better. So for, yeah. And so from a parenting aspect, like thinking about those concepts while at the same time providing a level of safety and security, because again, I don't ever want to have my kids in an environment or see or experience some of the things that I did. You know, we get back to the base statement at the beginning, like the adaptive stress and non-adaptive stress. Like there's, there's stuff in there that will, you know, I don't want to, you know, overspeak, you know, someone's traumatic experience and say, oh, it doesn't matter. But at the same time, you know, it happened. It doesn't define who you are. You know, your response to that does. And, you know, stoicism is a pretty popular topic these days. It wasn't around. I, I, I figured this mm -hmm. out on my own <laughs> uh, earlier in my life. Uh, now that uh, that stuff's pretty popular these days. But um, and, you know, the the important thing there is is understanding and it's an empowering thing to realize you're defined by your actions, your responses to the world and not the things that happen to you. And a lot of times people, you ask them who they are and they'll tell you, I'm this person because alcoholic parents, because I'm the person with a bad back and I'm always going to be, and it's all these external instead of, you know, the the other side of that and and it, it goes it goes beyond that um it's not just well it goes beyond that so like speaking to the traumatic things even like it's if if you've experienced that i don't want to negate it but it's happened and you can't be taken away but you could still why not use it then as best you can as leverage because everything is just like you walk into a gym your first time. And if you walk in and you go, I'm going to squat and you load two plates on the bar and you do it for 50 reps, it's going to eat you alive. Right. You ain't going to be walking for a month. Might hurt yourself in the process. Good likelihood. Right. But over time, you can do that if you build and you layer the workouts. Right. You train three, four days a week, take a few days off and you keep and you keep pushing and keep pushing. Um, you layer and someday you walk in and you've got this crazy workout ahead of you. Freak, I'm supposed to do 
225 for like I, I've got, you know, sets of 20 I'm doing, let's say. Shit, it's gonna stack up to like 50 reps. By the time I'm done, I'm a little scared. And and you do it and you walk away and you're like, wow, I can I can do that again. You know what? I think I can do a little bit more, right? And that's the layering, and that's the same thing with those other things in life. That's with the swiping the foot out from the other person. That's another chance of building that resilience, building those pathways and overcoming. Because, yeah, you can't walk in and do that. But everyone, everyone can build on their level of resilience over time and their ability to withstand stuff. And so wow, what does this mean? This means in your life that if you have an opportunity for challenging yourself and, and and I mean challenging yourself by taking on a client that you're afraid of working with because you're not sure that you can uh, perform the results uh, the a difficult conversation with a family member um, it could be a boss throwing out a job to the group that you're like I don't want I don't want that I hope somebody I'm not gonna raise my hand it could be I've been thinking about like, you know, quitting my job and going after, um, you know, getting into health and fitness or starting my own company, but I'm scared. I don't want to leave the security of it. It could be going back to school. It could be any number of these things that scare you. And that's your trigger. This anxiety and excitement churning around in your stomach. It's it's a twist in your gut. And that is the signal that that's your workout. And this is the the phys, this is the 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 other version of the workout that I'm talking about. And this is your opportunity. And I'm certainly not saying every one of those is going to work out in your favor. But you sit there and you have that hard conversation with a family member or your boss or take on that project or whatever it is. And you come out and you're like, that wasn't so bad. Next time something comes up, it's like, I can do this. I can turn, I, I've handled this. I can go there. And you take that on and you keep going, right? And so this is, this is money and understanding those are your signals and you have to have them. If you take the easy route and you try to avoid and you run from it, it's the same thing as going and taking a break from lifting for four months, you're gonna get soft, you're gonna get weak, and you'd have to go through the whole process again. And I'm not saying like, you know, the hustle entrepreneur porn, like grind, 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 take on every fucking challenge, beat yourself into the ground, burn the candle on both ends mentality, because just like your workout, I said, you know, train three, four days, five days a week, take a couple days off, like you come back from the weekend, you're going to be refreshed, recovered. You're going to hit it again, right? Bust your ass for six months. Take a vacation for a week. Feel good. Come back. You're going to hit it. You're going to have to rebuild a little bit, but you're going to be way further ahead. But if I decide to do three hours of CrossFit twice a day, seven days a week, it's going to fuck you up <laughs> every which way, right? So, so, so understand You've got to have a regular input 
boom, boom, boom. And anybody in the training world understand. I mean, this is basic training concepts, but it's everything in your life as well. You could have been a war hero 20 years ago, saved your battalion, gotten a medal of honor, done like some amazing things, and then didn't, you, and something happens in front of you. There's a car wreck, there's a kid inside, it's burning, and you lock up, you freeze, you can't do anything. A loved one dies in your life, and you need to step up to the plate to take care of things and organize it, but you're just devastated, you can't respond, you freeze, you can't react, because you're out of the practice, you're soft, you're weak. Man, it sounds like I'm a freaking jerk, but like, this is, this is physiology. You are preparing your physiology for stress in a safe way. This is, yes, it's the, exactly. Yeah, we talk a lot about the value of resilience, yeah. but how do we create it? And, and this isn't ethereal. This isn't over speaking. This isn't anything of that nature. It is not only human physiology. It is the essence of life. Not over speaking by any means. Because... That is what life is by definition, is this pushing and creating against the environment. It is, if I break my arm and I put a cast on, two things are going to happen. A stimulus was actually provided to the bone and is going to heal because it actually had some demand and stress and things happen. I could dive into the uh, what happens there, but not related to that podcast. You want to read it? I got a whole video on the uh, what happens. Uh, and the muscle will begin to atrophy immediately. So you cut your cast off six months later and your arm is weak, your bone is healed. Now, if I left that cast on for two years, the arm is weak and the bone is weak too because it's had no stimulus. And, and this is every living being. Scientists discovered this in the biodome with trees. They kept falling over. They couldn't figure it out for the longest time. They grow to a certain height and just freaking fall over. Because they didn't have the wind beating against them to tell the roots to grow strong and deep and into the ground. You know, and other things happen too. You know, like the, the bark was different because the environment, like it didn't tell it to freaking withstand to build some resilience. Yeah, you're talking systems at this point. You're talking about building systems. Yeah. Now, but, but a forest fire comes through. It's protected from the forest fire that would rip through and burn it to the ground because they're thinking, you ain't going to adapt to that very well, right? Um, yeah. And this is real, right? Like U.S. forestry was overplanting certain types of trees. <laughs> so on a higher level, the same stuff is still happening. This is, this is life. And I, that's why, like, when I start this discussion, a lot of people will think, like, I'm just being super philosophical and, like, oh, yeah, but, like, this is real. This is life. Yeah, I've been there, been there. Um, <laughs> more times than I probably would like, but that's uh, that's the life I've chosen. Um, early on, not chosen. Later on, chosen. And the first thing is when you're in that point, you're overwhelmed. It feels like there's no end in sight. The world's crashing down on you in every way possible. There's no way out. Like, is just accepting 
and acknowledging, okay, this is where I am at right now. Okay. There's some level of, of clarity that happens when you take a step back and then just acknowledge like, you know what? I am overwhelmed. I am stressed out. I don't know how I'm getting out of this. I don't know which way to turn. Like this is, is this too much? I'm questioning myself. Like acknowledge that fact. Okay. The second step from there is going, okay, I'm there, which means it's important to me. Whatever's happening, this thing is important. Otherwise, I wouldn't be feeling or experiencing it. And because I feel this way, it's going to bring out the best in me. I'm going to perform at my best at overcoming this because I feel this way. And then the next step is to celebrate that. Yeah, celebrate it. Because these, whatever moment that is, you need to realize like, this is the time in my life when I'm alive. This is the time I'm going to reflect back to 10 years from now, 20 years from now. If it's in your organization, tell your employees, this is going to be the glory days that we tell new people about. Because it may, we can't wait for this chapter to be over right now. We can't wait to get to the other end and get over with this so we can get to the enjoyable part. But when we get to the enjoyable part, that's the part that we're going to romanticize. That's the part that we're going to remember. That's the part that made our life fun and brought us some like, and so, um, and, and, and again, am I over speaking? Let's use some business books. I like to reference Phil Knight's shoe dog, <laughs> a wildly successful company. The first 15 years, they are on the verge of collapse, like every freaking month. And you read through the book and Phil and everybody in it, those were the glory days. Those are the ones that stories are tells about. That's the time that they wish they could go back in and be in the middle of and relive. But at the time, they couldn't wait till they were past that chapter just to the next date, this next date. So celebrate that this is part of the thing that's going to help you when you get to your deathbed and you're looking back on life and many people are having regrets of like living like these are going to be the things why you're not having those regrets because you fucking lived you put your ass on the line and you you played hard and took on stuff that people weren't willing to do that's my three-step process that's the internal dialogue and if that don't fucking get you fired up and thinking about how you process this stuff i don't know what to tell you maybe in the next life i don't know but i mean given your ability to dig in this deep there must also be a higher need for recovery. Does that ever get you into trouble? It, you have to challenge and you got to, you got to make a conscious effort. And I've been there, been there just this last year where I had to sit back and walk through this because I was just head fucked for months about the challenges I was facing on a personal level, a business level, um, you know, the, where I put myself with trying to launch and do so many things that 
I overreached, I overstepped and I'm on the verge of, I was on the verge of collapse. And it's just like, you know what? Fuck, this is, this is good shit. I'm here right now and I'm going to overcome this. This is the moment to fucking be. How would you describe your own self-care? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'd say I'm probably lacking. Most people around me would say I, I, I do not take care of myself the way that I should. And um, you could probably get the essence of that through my life because, um, you know, anybody that follows, you know, someone on social media or wherever can easily point out like, oh, you appear egotistical or self-centered with what you're posting, what you're saying, this or that, or even people in your life. But like, my life and everything that I do has always been about trying to help others and empower others and put people first. And so um, I may not be the best person to talk about that. It's got to be tough to be as driven as you are and rev as high as you can rev. And then switching it off can't just be a a simple feat, right? I, I can imagine it takes a lot more than that. Yeah. Uh, but the things that I do, you know, well is, is I always, for me, make sure that I've got, you know, this physical component, this relief of, you know, in my, in, in my life that I'm making sure that I take care of my sleep, that I'm making sure that I'm trying to set aside time for my family and, and put that at the forefront. And, uh, and these are things that I won't, I won't sacrifice, you know, I'm, I sleep nine hours a light night. I make sure I move every day. Uh, I train multiple times a week and I, I will not, you know, sacrifice my time with my family, my enjoyment. And, um, so, so, uh, yeah. Um, so it's a matter of, I guess for self-care, it comes down to the discussion of values and really understanding, you know, this gets to your point, is taking care of others, you know, part of your self-care. So for me, and this is the piece that I drive people on in, in my book, The Eagle and the Dragon, is really pushing people to understand their own values. What are their drivers? So you, you mentioned, hey, safety and security. Well, yeah, you know, someone that's lived like me, those are those are big drivers. And so I use an example like, you know, with uh, the hustle and entrepreneur porn stuff like them driving like people to like, you know, fuck what people say, go after the things that you want, get the get the get the mansion, get the fancy cars, get all this sort of stuff. If you want it, get it. Yeah, that's fine. Um, but understand why you want those things. So if it's because safety and security and you don't really realize that, that you want those things because when you have them, you'll think that, well, I must be successful enough in life that I can take care of my family, take care of myself, not be living paycheck to paycheck. But if you don't understand that, you can over leverage yourself to get those things and then be sitting there going, why am I unhappy? Why do I hate life? Why am I stressed out? Why do I have so much anxiety and depression? I got the things that I was supposed to get that I've always wanted, but you didn't. And so peeling back those layers to understand those drivers for you. 
And so, yeah, that's one of mine. You know, other ones of mine are our challenge, you know, chasing things uh, that, you know, stretch my limits, uh, my ability to perform to, um, you know, other ones within that, you know, cre having a creative outlet, uh, being able to inspire others. And this is, comes to the, you know, the others pieces, being able to uh, help people accomplish more than that they thought possible. And so once you understand this, it, it helps you define what you do with your life, your work, your life, like all these aspects so that you can create some alignment with everything that you do with be it your hobbies, your family, your career, it may be business, so on, uh, because it's more a way of living. These are things that you can never definitely have. You can definitely not have them, but they're more ways of being. You can't ever say done, check that off, but they're also things that you can always be better. There's always more. That's a phrase I use quite a bit because the important things like that, that you establish in that manner, there's, you can always be a little closer. You can always step closer, right? Um, there's never, there's never a retirement from it. <laughs> and so, so, so for me, the self-care comes in aligning your life so that you're living that so that when you are maybe chasing things heavy and hard or wherever it is for the right reasons and it's living in the right way. If you are not juiced from my interview with Christoph and I don't know what to tell you, the guy is so driven and so accomplished and so relentlessly competent. It's really kind of surreal. So I'm glad to know him. I'm glad to be able to talk to him from time to time. And I'm really glad to be able to share his insight and wisdom and experience with you. Thanks a lot for hanging out with us today. Special thanks to my guest, Chris Duffin. Shout out to the Unlearning Network. That link again to my in-person workshop is dadstrength.com slash ADHD. We'll see you next time. <laughs>